0: It's the end, end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and airplanes, yeah. many brutes, not afraid. I have a hermogene, listen to yourself, the world, is don't need something to your own head. Beat it up, and I'll Got no excuse, The for the clatter with the fear of fight down high, Fire in a fire, resistance of the gang, the government for hiring a combat site. But what wasn't coming in a hurry to maturity, get down your neck you the border, the with that low plane, fine them Overflow, corners, you putting a little secret devil, you the devil world, you know see your heart, tell me. you your you me the is the river, what the right. You're like, right, right, bike feeling British, like. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. alternative tonights decline. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end. dark heart of the city a mysterious figure known as dr bones who is that mysterious figure he seems so dark dark
1: Dark and mysterious Mysterious.
0: (laughs) and he has a heart
1: yes not a
0: great one but pretty good
1: oh you have a pretty good heart there we go so doom and bloom is the name of the show oh welcome to the
0: hour of doom
1: and Bloom <laughs> That's
0: right, the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour A river of righteousness in a rapacious world I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of Doom and doomandbloom.net Where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts On medical preparedness for any disaster
1: And I'm Amy Alton, I'm a certified nurse midwife And an advanced registered nurse practitioner And my nickname is Nurse Amy
0: That's right, we together Are the courageous couple The spectacular spouses The geezer and the goddess And we're here to help you keep it together Even if everything else falls apart Well, no sooner did we get back to sunny Florida After exhibiting at the world famous Shot show in Las Vegas (laughs) That we realized we had reservations To do a little fishing in the Florida Keys So if you've never been to the Florida Keys It is a lot of fun And when you go, you gotta go in January, February, maybe March, I think would be probably the best times. What do you think?
1: Absolutely. We've been Beautiful there. weather. Yes.
0: The it's like
1: the air conditioning is on outside.
0: Yes. It's really nice and it's a big difference from when we usually go. You've been there a couple of times in July and August. Oh, bad and boy. Move. Oh, boy. Bad move. It is so hot there and you. You'd have to
1: talk about.
0: What's what's what?
1: Dehydration
0: absolutely yeah (laughs) heat
1: exhaustion
0: that would be the show that we would broadcast from there that that's for sure but it was absolutely beautiful weather we actually went down all the way to key west this time around and it's always fun to go and see some of the historical areas there they have um
1: it is incredible that people lived down there so long ago
0: that's right and the funny thing is that it reminds me
1: mosquitoes must have been the size of cats
0: oh my gosh (laughs) they certainly took their toll in terms of yellow fever and other mosquito-borne illnesses on the residents there.
1: Entire families were wiped out.
0: Absolutely. It was uh, something terrible. It's very similar to what happened in New Orleans. Remember, we broadcast from there a while ago. But uh, I'll tell you that there are houses there. If you go there, you don't think that you're in Florida. If you didn't Take the palm trees into account, you would think you were somewhere in New England.
1: That's true.
0: Because a lot of these guys, uh, the captains would of the ships, came from New England. They came down and they realized that around Key West, a lot of ships had to go around Key West, and there were a lot of wrecks, especially during storms, hurricanes, things like that. But people would just wreck on the reefs. The it's
1: very shallow, area there, very right, shallow. Right, the
0: area there is part of. The third largest uh, coral reef Living coral reef at least uh, In the world And so they apparently made a bundle Off ships that were wrecked they, uh, If they got there first They managed to get a percentage Or at least be in charge Of salvaging whatever materials Are there Of course their job also was to save the lives Of the sailors that were aboard But
1: Then they took the stuff
0: <laughs> and they took all their the, stuff All
1: the furniture and <laughs> the, all everything they could find Gold,
0: yep, whatever, whatever it was Whatever it was Well, anyhow, it's an awesome time to go uh, fishing there It's an awesome time to go ahead and, and look at some of the, the cool homes there They have Ernest Hemingway's home is there And all sorts of other folks And the funny thing is, the,
1: remember the one that's called the Audubon House?
0: The Audubon House, yeah But Right
1: He never lived there.
0: That's right. For one
1: second. There actually wasn't a house in that location at the time.
0: Yes, it was the house of a Captain Geiger, actually, that was being built, I think. Uh, But Autobombs stayed next door and just went to that yard... I'm that? not
1: even sure the house was being built. I'm not At even. Time, I think it was really? just an open yard. Yeah. Oh my
0: gosh! Well, he just a tree. He just took a, a branch from a tree to use in one of his prints. John uh, James Audubon was a guy very famous for doing pictures or paintings of birds. Yes,
1: and this branch from the the yard was from a tree that I believe is still there. Is that, yep. the, is that the same tree that's still I there? I think so.
0: It's called the Geiger tree after Captain Geiger, who was the person who eventually did build a home there. And which is his what family the, lived there for many years. Which is years. what
1: the house should be called. is the Geiger house. Geiger house. house.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway,
1: lots of interesting history there.
0: And just the general ambiance of the place. You wouldn't believe it, but it's a city in which there are chickens all over the place. Chickens and and roosters roosters and all sorts of stuff. So
1: cute. But they're beautiful. Yes. They're really, their coloring is really, really beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's a really cool place to be. And if you have uh, some time in the winter, want to get away from the snow, well, hit the Florida Keys. You will not regret it. Hey, friends and neighbors. Have you been injured in an accident with a raucous rooster? Well, our attorney says don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this.
1: All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists, nor is implied between the host and listeners, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available.
0: True dat, but when futuristic technology becomes a thing of the past because of a major disaster, you know what, you're going to have to figure out how to keep people healthy off the grid. And what happens when you become the highest medical asset left to your family in times of trouble? Well, if that happens, you are going to have to have the knowledge, the training, the supplies, And make no mistake, you got to show the world that you got more sense than the good Lord gave a carton of cockroaches. And get (laughs) some training, get some education while you're at it. How about getting a quality medical kit to go along with all that? I can't think of a better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated but never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. They'll make your home, your workplace, your vehicle, your school, your church safer, gosh, everywhere. And they are designed by an honest-to-gosh, actively licensed medical doctor, and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. You'll agree with our booth visitors at the shop show that our kits are indeed what you should have in your medical storage. You want more proof? Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net See what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service And on top of all that, our kits are approved Approved for your health or flexible savings account Just look at our special HSA FSA section in the store at store.doomandbloom.net Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us that has got to be painfully obvious just by listening to this podcast. So give us a call, Paul, and connect with the Queen and the Codger. It's very easy. Here's Nurse Amy to tell you how.
1: Yes, you can contact us anytime at Podcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy and for one stop shopping, you can see everything on our Facebook page, Doom and Bloom. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show, and don't forget our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy channel. And remember, you can sign up for our RSS feed so you don't miss any of our content that might save lives in times of trouble. At the top of doomandbloom.net, of course, you can find. All the icons to connect to all of these different social media resources anytime you want.
0: And also a search engine so you can look up whatever topics that you might want to read an article about or see a video about. Yep. And by the way, did I mention that you can find some of our articles in great magazines like Backwards Home, American Survival Guide, Survivor's Edge, all those great magazines that... Give you all the information that you need To stay safe, stay alive In survival scenarios Well here is one last shameless plug I promise you it is the last one For A new book Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials In Austere Settings It's a detailed look into the fish and bird antibiotics And the infections that they are helpful to cure or prevent It's about 300 pages or so Long concentrates on the antibiotics That are indeed available to the average person Without a prescription And the diseases those antibiotics cure All of this stuff that I've been writing about All these years That I'm convinced that in wise hands Will save some people Who otherwise wouldn't survive Times of trouble I can confidently say You haven't read a book like this From anybody else that's a medical professional This is not stuff you'll learn at your cert class Or even from Books like Where There Is No Doctor, I'll tell you, you will definitely not regret having Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibiotics in Austere Settings in your survival library. Remember, our books are meant for situations where there is not a functioning modern medical system. If there is, please go to a doctor or a certified medical professional as soon as you possibly can. Hey, you know, we don't often get to report good news these days, but here's something that makes the authorities celebrate, actually, and may have saved hundreds of lives in, of all places, Australia. In a joint drug bust, Australian and U.S. agents actually seized a record-setting 1.7 tons of crystal meth worth apparently $1.29 billion in Los Angeles right at the seaport just before it sailed for... The uh, land down under, the land down under. Down under. <laughs> Have you been to the land down under? All right, right. <laughs> Customs and Border Protection announced the seizure of three cargo containers, three whole cargo containers, which were intended to be shipped to Australia. They were filled with stereo speakers that were apparently very skillfully stuffed with the drugs. And there were three thousand eight hundred and ten pounds of meth, but plus another fifty-six pounds of cocaine, eleven point five pounds of heroin. Wow, the total street value, one point two nine million. I will tell you that somebody in the drug cartel is sleeping with the fishes tonight. That is wow, a lot of drugs. So I think they're saved a lot of lives there, but I wanted to talk a little bit about meth. Amphetamine just in general What is methamphetamine? Most people thankfully don't know But here's some information That I think would probably be very very useful For you to know If you're going to be the medic Methamphetamine, that is a very powerful And very highly addictive stimulant It's a stimulant, it's not like heroin Which, you know, is sort of a downer It's a stimulant That affects the central nervous system Uh, It's called All sorts of stuff, crystal. Meth, ice, chalk, all sorts of weird things. Meth. Let's. Well, I'm just going to call it meth. Then it takes a form of a white, sort of bitter-tasting, not not that I know, crystalline powder that easily dissolves in in water or alcohol. Methamphetamine was developed early in the 20th century, more than 100 years ago, actually, from its parent drug amphetamine. It was used originally for nasal congestion and also, to open up airways bronchial as a bronchial inhaler. Like amphetamine, methamphetamine causes increased activity, talkativeness, decreased appetite, a pleasurable sense of well-being, euphoria, that kind of thing. However, it differs from amphetamine in that at comparable doses, much greater amounts of the drug actually get into your brain. It's a super potent version of it. And it also is longer-lasting and unfortunately has more harmful effects on the central nervous system. These these characteristics make it a drug with a lot of potential for abuse. And the last survey indicated a few years ago that about 1.2 million people in the U.S., Had used meth in the previous year And about 450,000 people in the last month And luckily this represents a little bit of a drop Still a lot of people at risk for major addiction though The average age of users just 19 and a half And the drug appears to be most popular in the Midwest and western parts of the country Now methamphetamine comes in several forms You can smoke it, you can inhale it or snort it as they say You can inject it or you can eat it, I guess. Smoking uh, amphetamine... It all sounds gross. uh, Smoking meth seems to be the most common way of abusing it, and you're absolutely right. It is gross, gross, gross. Now, if you smoke it or inject it, it actually puts the drug very quickly into the bloodstream and goes right to the brain causing what they call a rush and amplifying the drug's addiction potential exponentially, and of course, it's other adverse health consequences. So, this rush, so to speak, last... A few minutes It's supposed to be Extremely pleasurable And It gives you Euphoria So uh, If you snort it It produces effects Within about Three to five minutes Oral injection Though it takes about Fifteen to twenty minutes Before you feel the effect But you do feel the effect Methamphetamine Has been classified By the US DEA As a schedule Two stimulant That means it's Legally available But only Through a non-refillable prescription Medically it may be indicated For the treatment of attention deficit Disorder uh, Or as a short term component Of weight loss treatments I'll bet Uh, But these uses are very limited Rarely prescribed honestly uh, And also the doses that you prescribe it Are super low compared to those That are used by People that are abusers Or addicts Drug agents, by the way, i got to tell you that our drug agents are indeed on a roll. The bust is the third major seizure announced by U.S. authorities in a matter of weeks. They announced the largest ever fentanyl bust bust on January 31st. Authorities seized 254 pounds of the stuff. It is a super powerful opioid, makes heroin seem like, uh, I don't know, taking a Xanax, Uh, Worth about 3.5 million bucks And they found it at the Nogales Port of Entry in Arizona And that is enough to overdose Well, let's see, how many people is it enough to overdose? Well, according to the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA Two milligrams of fentanyl is a lethal dose for most people Now, how many two milligram doses of fentanyl are there in a pound? One pound equals, according to this, 453,592 grams. So that means that a two-gram lethal dose, you have to cut that in half, that's two about 227,000 lethal doses per pound. That's they insane. Found, they found 254 pounds. So that's enough to kill, by overdose, Ugh. about 58 million people.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: That is absolutely nuts
1: Horrifying
0: Now according to uh, statistics Last year the agency seized 135,000 pounds Almost 136,000 pounds of cocaine 2,000 pounds of heroin 6,000 pounds of methamphetamine Well I'll tell you That is uh, Greatly increased by that Huge meth bust that they just had So all I have to say is that – oh, and the, oh, I want to say the third drug bust was just two days later, and that was in, also in Arizona, Maricopa County. Uh, they announced the sheriff's office that they seized 3,500 pounds of marijuana, 3,500 pounds of marijuana and over 220 pounds of meth near a place called Gila Bend. I guess after Gila Monsters, uh, when two trucks swerved around a border patrol checkpoint, tried to elude authorities in a desert chase. So, I don't know, but I thought this marijuana being being legal in all these states now was going to dry up that market. I guess it does not. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about meth. Going back to meth for just a second. So, you should be able to identify people that are on meth. So, when somebody uses meth in the short term, they're going to be very talkative. They're going to be very focused uh, that will... Not get tired They'll experience Decreased fatigue They won't be hungry They'll lose their appetite uh, They may breathe Faster They take breaths in At, at a, a Sort of rapid rate As also their heart rate Is rapid And interestingly enough They actually Become hot They get, Actually develop a, a temperature Now as With any drug Or uh, That's abusive As you progress You're going to have Some more serious effects So Long-term signs of abuse, and so I really want you to be able to recognize these things. You never know when you're going to see somebody in your family or somebody you know who has a problem. Uh, Of course, they may need more to achieve the same effect. That's called tolerance. But these people have a tendency to be anxious. They are confused a lot. They have mood changes, including a lot of violent behavior. They could be paranoid. They may actually have psychotic tendencies. They could see things or hear things that aren't there. They might feel like bugs are crawling on them or beneath them, uh, beneath the skin. They may have a lot of itching. They may lose a lot of weight. And there's actually something called meth mouth, which is a variety of dental issues that occur as a result uh, of the drug's damaging effects. Of course, like anybody else, if they happen to inject it, they'll have marks from needle use. They'll have infections at the injection sites and... Yeah, they'll probably wear long sleeves to try to cover up all of these signs. Now you need to know, you need to know how to identify an overdose victim. A person, if they have consumed a large amount of methamphetamine, they're going to experience and show you the following symptoms. They're going to be very agitated. They're going to have chest pain. They are going to have irregular heartbeat. They're going to have difficulty breathing. They're going to have a super high body temperature, and they're going to be very paranoid. Sometimes they can have a lot of pain. Now, these things get even worse as things go. As if things are not treated, they wind up having. They could have a heart attack. They have a. There's actually not a bad outcome. They couldn't have. They have a heart attack, a stroke. They can. Go into a coma. They can have seizures. They can have a cardiac arrest. Uh, kidney damage, kidney failure. All sorts of terrible things happen. So you've got to definitely be able to identify these things and get that person to help right away. And if you were off the grid and somebody happened to overdose on methamphetamine, we first of all we have to wonder how they got it, but. I'll tell you there's probably not a heck of a lot That you can do other than try to keep That person as calm as possible And see if they can Ride it out Well like a lot of other addictive stimulants Meth has no FDA approved treatment For addiction So basically you have to deal with The symptoms themselves and the Both the physical and psychological symptoms Of the overdose Instead of being actually to reverse the drug itself You can reverse let's say a heroin overdose possibly or uh, by giving something called Narcan or Naloxone Uh, but that is something that helps with opiates it does not help with stimulants like this. Of course begin by making sure that you're safe because remember some victims are violent and then assess a person's vitals to determine what's next. Meth remember can cause a person's temperature to rise to drastic heights and that is something that has to be cooled off. You may need an ice bath or something to that effect. Of course, they may have high blood pressure. They may have an increased or irregular heart rate. And they could be having seizures. We've talked all about all these things in past shows. And certainly in future shows, we'll revisit them. Now, if a person has taken meth orally, you could actually try a laxative and activated charcoal. Uh, But of course these people have to be actually physically alert and with it And I'm not sure that that really is a possibility But they would probably help to pass the toxins and cleanse them from a person's system In a quicker manner than their body would on its own In order to avoid the drug continuing to cause problems You might consider that Activated charcoal though you have to remember can cause constipation if you give too much the drugs and a diagnostic tests for meth overdose patients Well, forget it They're not going to be available to the average citizen In the aftermath of a major disaster Especially a long-term one So it's best to identify your meth users And other people that may be at risk Now, get them help Before the you-know-what hits the fan Hey, you know, last week we talked a little bit About nuclear weapons And the kind of radi- kinds of radiations that are given off by the detonation of those things. And, of course, the risk of conflict between nuclear power is always a possibility, so we always should consider the risk from radiation that's emitted by either nuclear weapons or, of course, uh, nuclear reactor meltdowns. We had one in Fukushima about uh, eight years ago, and that was a major issue caused a lot of problems for Japan. Now, many consider things like nuclear attacks Pretty outlandish Just a conspiracy theory kind of deal But unfortunately, well The threat of a nuclear incident either Whether it's accidental, purposeful, whatever Always exists And so let's talk now about radi- How radiation doses to the human body Are measured as well as the effects on the body At different doses Now atomic weapons can decimate a population from just from the blast and heat effects, but they can also cause illness and death due to exposure from radiation. Now, a nuclear event, whether it's an explosion or a meltdown, produces radiation that can form what we call fallout. And fallout is a particulate type of matter That is thrown into the air by the event It can travel hundreds if not thousands of miles On prevailing winds And can coat fields, livestock, and people With all sorts of radioactive material The higher the fallout goes into the atmosphere The farther it travels downwind The level of exposure depends on the distance The radioactive particles do travel from the meltdown How long they take to arrive Because they have a half-life And they slowly in some cases very slowly, in some cases not so slowly, deteriorate. The material in fallout usually contains elements that are hazardous if you inhale them or ingest them, like radioiodine. Cesium, strontium are elements that are trouble. And even worse, fallout is absorbed by animals and plants that make up the food supply, so sometimes you can't get away from actually getting radiation in your system. In large enough amounts, it can become life-threatening and even in small amounts it, it's hazardous to your long-term health now a nuclear power plant meltdown usually a little less damaging than a nuclear blast radioactive material just doesn't make it quite as high up in the sky as a mushroom cloud from uh, detonation the worst effects will be felt by those people normally near the reactors themselves the people who lived in fukushima um Lighter particles like radioactive iodine, however, will travel the farthest and they represent the main concern for those people that are far from the actual explosion or meltdown. There were traces of radioactive iodine found in the U.S. West Coast uh, after the reactor breakdown in Fukushima in 2011. The medical effects of exposure are collectively known as radiation sickness or in some cases they refer to them as ARS or acute radiation syndrome. A certain amount of radiation exposure is tolerable over time But your goal, of course, is to find shelter as quickly as you possibly can And to accomplish this goal, we should first clarify a little bit What the different terms for measuring the quantities of radiation are Scientists use all sorts of different terms Such as rads, grays, rems, sieverts, becquerels, curies All sorts of different terms to describe radiation amounts Different terms are used when describing the amount of radiation that's being given off by a source, the total amount of radiation that's actually absorbed by something, by a human or animal perhaps, or the chance that a living thing will suffer health damage from exposure. We're going to go over those in a minute. But how is radiation first discovered? Well, like a lot of things in science, pretty much by accident. In 1896, a man, a scientist named Henry or Henri Becquerel, was studying the properties of x-rays which had been discovered just the previous year he exposed a substance containing the element uranium to sunlight and then he placed it on photographic plates that were wrapped in black paper now what he believed was that the uranium absorbed the sun's energies and then expelled those that energy as x-rays well it didn't his experiment failed but for some reason Becquerel decided to develop those photographic plates anyway. And to his surprise, even on an overcast day without sun, the images came out strong and clear, proving that uranium emitted radiation without an external source of energy like the sun required. Becquerel had discovered, bingo, radioactivity. So basically, radioactivity was discovered entirely by accident. Now, soon afterwards, a husband and wife scientist team named Marie and Pierre Curie found elements even more radioactive than uranium, polonium, and radium. And since these scientists did most of the early work on, well, and died from radiation exposure, the first units of radioactivity were named after them. So quickly, Becquerels and Curie's, these terms are named after some of the first scientists uh, As we mentioned And they describe the amount of radiation That say a hunk of uranium would give off into the environment Then there are rads and grays Rads are probably the most well-known term When it comes to talking about radiation Uh, Rads are the amount of radiation in the environment That's actually absorbed by a living thing It's been largely replaced by the term gray Named after the scientists of the same name And 100 rads equals 1 gray and then there are REMs and sieverts. The measurement and these are the measurement of the risks of health damage from the radiation absorbed. One REM equals one rad, and one of either unit equals uh, one one hundredth of a sievert or ten millisieverts. Oh boy, this is <laughs> incredibly confusing. Each of these has subtle differences also in definition. but well, I'm not going to get too much into it. So for our purposes, let's use we're going to uh, let's use rads. Okay, so let's use RADs. Remember, a RAD, uh, or radiation-absorbed dose, R-A-D, measures the amount of radiation energy transferred to some mass of material, and we're going to use humans as the example. So some effects of radiation exposure, an acute radiation dose, one that's received over a short period of time, that's the one that's most likely to cause damage and be life-threatening, and there are all sorts of different effects on humans based on the amount of radiation that is absorbed so let's say let's assume that in total you absorb maybe 0.6 rads per year maybe less from natural or household sources and these are the effects of different degrees of radiation on humans when you as you go higher let's say you go from 0.6 rads which is normal but you are you are exposed to 30 to 70 rads At 30 to 70 rads you start having symptoms You may have a mild headache You may feel vaguely nauseous Within several hours of exposure But in total We expect you to recover fully Now you go from 70 to 150 rads Well you have your mild nausea But people may start vomiting That happens in about a third of patients If you have open wounds uh, Let's say There were people who had uh, uh, Injuries after the bomb was dropped In Hiroshima that Their wound healing was decreased As a result of exposure If they were exposed to 70 to 150 RADs And they had increased Susceptibility also to infection However, even at that level They do expect Full recovery In almost, in almost all cases Now once you hit about 150 to 300 RADs That's A lot of RADs So you wind up having the majority of people being nauseous, vomiting. You have them about half of them also fatigued and weak. There's all sorts of infections that may occur due to a weakened immune system. Some people may uh, have clotting factor issues and start bleeding spontaneously and pretty much... Most of your people are going to need some kind of medical care. There are going to be people with burns or uh, wounds that those people are going to have an issue. And indeed, you may start seeing at the upper limit, about 300 rads, you start seeing people actually die. That uh, 300 rads is about three grays. So you might see some deaths at that level. Now, once you hit three to five grays or 300 to 500 rads, well, pretty much everybody's vomiting, everybody's weak, everybody's fatigued. Uh, people have diarrhea. People are dehydrated. People have no appetite. Their skin begins to break down. Infections super common. Hair loss visible in most people over time. And at the high level of exposure at, at 500 rads, probably about a 50% death rate. And once you hit 500 rads, over 500 rads, people are bleeding spontaneously. They start getting ulcers in their their GI tract their stomach and their intestines They have fever, bloody diarrhea Dehydration Infections, hair loss Pretty much in Everybody and the death rates approach 100% so there you Have a whole spectrum Of what to expect based on the doses The effects related to Exposure may also occur By the way over time you don't lose your hair Immediately Uh, Hair loss probably would become apparent About 10 to 14 days And you may not die right away either Death may may occur weeks after the exposure So let's talk a little bit about How to protect against exposure to radiation Both directly to the body And by ingestion of radioactive food and water Now in the early going Your goal is going to be to prevent exposures of over 100 rads let's say uh, there is a dose meter a dosimeter rather that is good for radiation and that's useful to gauge radiation levels people that work in uh, jobs that expose them to radiation have to wear this every day it's widely available for purchase just look online for a radiation dosimeter d-o-s-i-m-e-t-e-r and you'll find it. And this item gives you an idea of your likelihood of developing radiation sickness, much more useful than the classic Geiger counter. I'll I'll tell you why in, in a few minutes. Now, there are three basic ways of decreasing the total dose of radiation that you experience. One is you limit the time that you're not protected. Radiation that's absorbed is dependent on the length of exposure, and so you want to leave areas where high levels are detected and you're not. In an adequate shelter, the activity of radio- radioactive particles, by the way, decreases over time. After 24 hours, levels usually drop to less than one tenth their previous value. If you remember my seven ten rule, in reality, with every seven hours, every seven times the length of exposure, it actually drops to about one tenth. So the amount of radiation you're exposed to at one hour if go if you go and extrapolate that out to seven hours after the event then it's actually at one tenth its previous value so that's the 710 rule we talked about that in last week's show so make sure you check that out if you if you didn't of course, you also want to increase the distance that you are from the source of the radiation. Radiation disperses over distance, and the effect of radiation decreases the further away that you actually are. If you're at ground zero, you don't have to worry about anything because you're dead because of from the blast and the thermal effects. But as you go further out, that radiation becomes more and more of an issue, and of course you want to provide a barrier. That's the third thing that you want to do is you want to have a shelter. A shelter will decrease the level of exposure, so it's important to know how to construct one that will serve as a shield between your people and the radiation source. A dense material gives better protection than a light or a porous material. And so the more material that you can use to separate yourself from fallout, the more likely you won't suffer ill effects. Now, barrier effectiveness is measured as what we call having thickness as in one half this is the thickness of a particular shield material that will reduce gamma radiation which is the most dangerous kind If you remember from last week by one half now when you multiply the halving thickness you multiply your protection for example the halving thickness of concrete is 2.4 inches or 6 centimeters. That means that standing behind a barrier or within a shelter of 2.4 inches of concrete will drop radiation exposure by about one-half. Now, if you double that thickness and make that thickness instead of 2.4 inches, you make it 4.8 inches of concrete. That drops it by one-fourth, one-half times one-half. Tripling it, making it, 7.2 7.2 inches will drop it to 1/8th, one 1/2 one times 1/2 times 1/2. If you extrapolate that out, 10 halving thicknesses, in other words, 24 inches of concrete between you and the radiation, drops the total radiation exposure to 1/1024th that of being out in the open. There are a lot of different materials that can be used for your shelter and here's the halving thickness of some common ones of course if you were lucky enough to have have sheets of lead well that's the most effective or one of the most effective is 0.4 inches is the halving thickness so all you would need is one centimeter essentially of lead for your shelter to drop the radiation exposure by half steel You need about 1 inch Instead of 0.4 inches of lead 1 inch of steel will do the same thing I mentioned concrete 2.4 inches for having thickness Soil, if you pack it If it's well packed And you're underneath the ground You have soil as as a barrier At 3.6 inches You would need Water actually could serve as a barrier too If you were under your pool For example If you had a, a bunker under the pool it's seven point two inches of water is the having thickness of water, and wood is about eleven inches, so you would have to build to really have that one thousand twenty fourth radiation exposure that you really would like to have. you probably would have to build your barrier or your build your shelter out of whole sequoia trees, I would guess. <laughs> So anyhow, the denser the material, the bottom line is the more protection you get. You can see that if you have an underground shelter with enough dirt above it, it can be pretty effective. And so that, I think, makes a lot of sense. Above ground, you need close to 10 feet of solid wood between you and the outside to really get the same protection as just four inches of lead. Controlling airflow, by the way, is very important as well for a shelter. You want to turn off fans, air conditioners, force air Heating units that bring air in from the outside That would be something you would want not want If there was a radiation event You want to close and lock all windows and doors You want to close fireplace dampers too So that's important Now to decontaminate yourself Generally speaking the most effective method of decontamination After a nuclear event Simply removing your clothes You probably should toss them honestly And take a shower to wash off radioactive particles that are on you The air is not radioactive, but the dust in it is and needs to be off your body. Use lots of soap, but don't scald yourself, scrub, or scratch your skin. Do anything that might cause breaks in the skin. That would increase the chances of some radiation injury. Your skin helps protect the inside of your body from radiation, radioactive material. Now, it's okay to wash your hair with shampoo or soap, but don't use conditioner. It actually causes radioactive material to stick to your hair. And you want to keep cuts and abrasions covered when you're washing to keep them from getting radioactive material in any open wounds. And, of course, it's entirely possible you can't take a shower in, if you're in a true survival situation. In that case, at least wash your hands, your face, and parts of your body that were exposed at some sink or faucet or some water source. At, at, again, use soap and plenty of water If you don't have access to a sink or faucet, use a moist wipe, clean wet cloth, damp paper towel to wipe the parts of your body that were uncovered and just pay special attention to your hands and face. You might want to gently blow your nose too because it might have gone into your nasal cavity. You might have breathed in some fallout. You want to wipe your eyelids, your eyelashes, your ears with a moist wipe uh, or a clean wet cloth and you want to put These materials in a plastic bag or other sealable container and place a bag in an out of the way place where other people or pets can't get to it. Now, the other thing that you might do is pray for rain. Rain is a good thing at the time of or after a radiation event. You know, that rain washes the dust from the air, diluting it into runoff. Yes, the runoff would be radioactive, but the more rain, the more diluted the runoff would be. So that's something Now the drinking water The CDC prefers that in a radiation event You drink water, juices, or other drinks In sealed containers And wipe off the container Before you actually drink it Drinks in your refrigerator or freezer Probably safe to drink uh, The package uh, does protect liquid in, liquid inside But you do have to wipe the package uh, Water in other containers in your home Even the toilet t- toilet tank Or maybe the hot water heater These should also be free of radioactive material. You might be surprised to know that the CDC says you can still use tap or well water for cleaning yourself and your food. Even if the tap water is contaminated, you could still use it to decontaminate yourself. This, they reason is because it does sound sort of funny to me but this day reason is because any radioactive material that gets into surface water or groundwater sources is going to be diluted to very low levels by the water and hopefully it will be safe to use for washing skin hair or clothing i don't know it does sound a little fishy to me but that's what they say but even if the tap water is uncontaminated health Public health officials may recommend that you drink bottled water instead of tap water, so it's not a bad idea to have a good supply of that on hand in in your shelter. So all of this raises another question. How to decide if somebody needs to be decontaminated? Well, if you're wearing a radiation dosimeter badge, it's pretty cut and dried. But Geiger counters, how about if somebody actually activates a Geiger counter and and starts tick, 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 ticking? Well, you, you know... After Fukushima, you saw everybody getting Geiger counted. The problem is that it's really hard to interpret readings from a Geiger counter. They vary from machine to machine. The size of the probe makes a difference. Whether the machine was calibrated against a known source of radiation. And in addition, Geiger counter readings don't tell you what type of radiation a person was exposed to. Was it radioactive iodine, which... Uh, you might be able to use ThyroSafe To protect yourself from thyroid cancer Down the road Or is it something that's going to have A very long half-life Like cesium Take Has like a 29-year half-life If I remember correctly Radioiodine degrades much faster than that But once radioactive particles Do get inside the body By breathing them in Or more importantly through ingestion It can remain in tissue And cause all sorts of Submicroscopic havoc For a lifetime And so we'll talk about Treating radiation sickness And whether there are filters that eliminate Radiation contamination from water In our next show Well, I'll tell you It's unlikely you'll confirm Radiation sickness in anybody Unless there is an actual radiation event That occurs somewhere near your home But Throughout the country We're beginning to see A lot of cases of measles And then uh, there is a Actual outbreak of measles In Washington state Over 50 confirmed cases And lawmakers there Have introduced a bill That would eliminate Personal or philosophical objections To being vaccinated From measles, mumps, and rubella As a reason not to vaccinate a child That's called House Bill 1638 Over there and would look to eliminate those kinds of exemptions as related to the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, otherwise known as the MMR vaccine, but would still allow it for religious and medical exemptions. And the bill is a direct, indeed, response to the current measles outbreak. All 50 states actually have laws regarding immunization of vaccines for school children, but Washington is one of about 18 states that do allow for personal exemptions In addition to medical and religious objections According to the National Conference for State Legislators Only Mississippi, California, and West Virginia Do not allow for religious exemptions And all three states do allow for medical exemptions Provided they're documented by a physician California eliminated personal exemptions in 2015 Following a measles outbreak that made international headlines After it was determined, the exposure began at Disneyland, no no less. The California outbreak actually spread to Canada and Mexico, where visitors uh, often come from, and visitors from that country went returned home and actually infected other folks. The state of California has also had an outbreak of whooping cough in 2010 that infected nearly 9,000 people, was the cause of 10 infant deaths, although. Antibiotics like azithromycin and erythromycin Actually can cure the disease Now measles though that's, being, that's a virus And that is really unaffected by any antibiotics Now most of the measles cases In Washington occurred In Clark County That is an area where an above average number of school aged children Have not been vaccinated Due to personal exemptions by their parents Now the bill Is pushing to eliminate These personal exemptions but medical, religious reasons Still not impacted So just depends on how you feel On, on Friday uh, The Associated Press reported That hundreds of people Arrived in Olympia, Washington To protest the bill at the state capitol As the House Health Care and Wellness Committee Heard testimony with regards to this bill So why am I talking about this? Because I want you to be able to identify A case of measles If you're the medic and some disaster event Makes you the end of the line Maybe for years Well eventually all the children under your care Are going to be unvaccinated And so it's important to know it When you see it Measles is a highly contagious Infectious disease caused by the measles virus Also known as rubeola And symptoms usually develop About 10 to 12 days after exposure To an infected person They last about 7 to 10 days in total Initial symptoms usually include a high fever, sometimes greater than 104 degrees. Uh, There's a cough, a runny nose, inflamed eyes. In medical speak, these are known as the three C's. C for cough, C for chorizo, which is another word for nasal congestion. They probably should just say congestion. And the third C is conjunctivitis, or pink eye, for inflamed eyes. Now, you might think it's the flu at first, but then... You start seeing small white spots Known as coplic spots Form inside the mouth That's about two to three days After the start of symptoms And then a red flat rash Usually starts on the face And then spreads to the rest of the body And you can expect that About three to five days After the start of symptoms They have a tendency to start off red Turn brownish as time goes on And there are a lot of other Possible signs and symptoms And it depends on how complicated The case is uh, Could could have diarrhea you almost certainly will have itching Uh, middle ear infections occur pneumonia in the worst cases will occur and sometimes you'll see seizures some people get actually lose their vision as a result and inflammation of the brain may occur in some cases death Uh, measles is an airborne disease spreads very easily through the coughs and sneezes of infected people it may also be spread through contact with saliva or nasal secretions now how easily is it spread This easily 9 out of 10 people Who are not immune And share living space With an infected person They will also get the disease People are infectious to others From about 4 days before To 4 days after the start of the rash So it's important To have a dedicated sick room or tent And that's something we talk a lot about In our new book Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease As well as other places On our website and our other books Luckily most people Don't get the disease more than once. Well, I'll tell you, I think that's about all the time that we have. Amy, you have been
1: <laughs> quiet. Quiet I've and been working. just listening to I've, me. And, I've, yeah. I've been what have getting you been my, doing? my UPC numbers.
0: Oh, okay. You need it's that. It's not
1: easy. <laughs>
0: well, but people, a lot, lot of other other companies like that when they order our kits They yes, want to see our UPC numbers. Yes. So. that sounds fair to organizing. me.
1: Organizing. All right. Well, that's
0: fine. Well, that's all the time we have. For this week, we are glad you listened to our show, The Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy. And we'll hope you listen every week, same time, same station, or any time that you want on Blog Talk Radio. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.dubinbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.